Welcome back to Curious Combinations and Everything's Unoriginal Podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm covering Castlevania Season 1, Episode 1, and Episode 2. You guys, after the utter slog that was Vampire Night Guilty, I cannot tell you how relieved I am by the opening of Castlevania Season 1. I was dreading finding myself entrenched in another vampire-centric mistake of a story, but based off these first two episodes, I'm really optimistic right now. I'm only two episodes in, yes, but Castlevania seems to be hitting a delightful balance of, like, video gamey charm and respect for Stoker's original work, and I am so excited to see where the rest of the story is going to go. It is, after all, a very short first season. I don't know precisely how this is going to work out. I'd wager there's no way we're going to get a Belmont v. Dracula confrontation anytime soon. So what are we going to be dealing with in the back half of this season? Because these first two episodes were incredibly introductory. Episode 1 introduced our main antagonist, and Episode 2 introduced our main protagonist. So how do we wrap this season up with a complete narrative structure? Or is this season only going to serve as the opening arc for the larger plot? I really can't wait to find out. But before I get too much further ahead of myself, let's get into the recap, because I have many thoughts. We open on a fictionalized version of Wallachia in the year 1455. The impaled skeletons dotting the landscape tell the viewer what we are doing right away. While Stoker wasn't actually inspired by Vlad Tepish, he merely found the name Dracula in a library and mistook it for the Romanian translation of Devil. Modern cultural understanding is that Stoker's Count Dracula was based upon Vlad III of Wallachia, aka Vlad Tepish, aka Vlad Dracula, aka Vlad the Impaler. Impaling people was kind of his thing, so these impaled skeletons combined with my pre-existing knowledge that Count Dracula plays somehow into this story, well, it's promising. It promises. Now, let's get a little bit of background stuff out of the way first, shall we? First, Dracula does not mean devil. It actually means son of Dracul, and in regards to Vlad Tepish, it's actually a reference to his father's membership in a Christian society of knights called the Order of the Dragon. Vlad Tepish was absolutely not a vampire, by the way. He was, as far as I know, never associated with vampirism until Stoker appropriated his name for his infamous count. And for reference, Dracula was published in 1897, while Tepish lived from around 1430 to 1477. Second, Stoker's vampires were not the first modern vampires. Stoker was building upon the tradition of older works, including Lefanu's Carmilla and the Varney the Vampire Penny Dreadful. And perhaps even more importantly, his Dracula hardly resembles our modern understanding of either vampires at large or the Count specifically. Points of note are Dracula's power set in the original novel. Sunlight didn't harm or kill him. Drinking blood made him younger and healthier. He could transform into not only a bat, but also a wolf smoke, and potentially other things, too. He turned people into vampires by feeding them his own blood over a period of nights. He had to sleep in earth brought with him from Transylvania, and perhaps most shockingly, he was not killed with a wooden stake through the heart, but with a knife. Third, by the standards of 1897, Dracula was both a terrifying and a horny fucking book. Don't get fooled into thinking that sexy vampires are a new thing. Before there was Edward, there was Angel and Spike. Before them, there was Lestat. And long before any of those fuckers, Carmilla and Dracula were running around with a perfect balance of repulsive but irresistible sexuality that had the Victorians all aflutter. The wealth of analysis examining the sexual themes of Dracula could literally drown us all, and no one could ever hope to read all of it. So let me merely say that Dracula dealt heavily with themes of homosexuality, female sexuality, and predatory male sexuality. 
As we move into Castlevania, I have no idea what, if any of that, will be relevant. Castlevania is, after all, a Japanese take on the Dracula story dating all the way back to 1986. Now, I assume that this show is going to be adapting one or more of the Castlevania video games plotlines, but as I aim to avoid spoilers, I'm not going to be looking up any specifics here. I will note that I know scant few details about the story going into it. I know that Dracula is a villain, I know that there is someone named Alucard who I think is like the secret half vampire child of Dracula, but that could be from another franchise, I'm not sure. And I know that there's someone named Belmont. And that's the extent of my knowledge. So as I said, we find that the show opens in 1455 Wallachia, when the real Vat Tepish would be about 25 at the oldest, by the way. Between this age discrepancy and the other world building that we're going to be seeing very shortly, I think it's safe to say that we're not doing a historical fiction plus monsters thing here. We're doing alternate history. Castlevania's 1455 has priests wearing modern Catholic uniforms and vampires who are hoarding the secrets of science, so... Well, it's interesting, if nothing else. Less interesting is the fridging that we all but immediately get as we move into the show proper. A blonde woman of uncertain age walks into an enormous steampunk-inspired castle with some truly gorgeous interior shots. She introduces herself as Lisa and announces to the inhabitant of the castle, the inexplicably towering Count Dracula, that she intends to learn about healing from him. And she is nothing if not entitled as she does this. She demands his tutelage, criticizes his hospitality, and more or less makes herself right the hell at home. And while Dracula later purports to have fallen in love with this woman, I'd say it's safer to believe that she's actually kind of just like, she hung around and refused to leave until he got used to having her there and he kind of thought that was love. And on her part, I can't really pretend that I blame her. If I were trapped in 1455 and I set eyes on that golden lab meets library place that he's got hidden away in his castle, I would be pretty impossible to get rid of too. So, cut to 20 years later in a different part of Wallachia. Lisa doesn't appear to have aged any, if at all, but she's not long for this world anyway. Somehow she's gotten on the bad side of the local church, and so of course they're getting their rocks off by burning her at the stake. Given that it's 1475, we're about a century off from the onset of the peak of witch hunting, but I'm sure that comes as no comfort to Lisa. Despite being married to an immortal man who appears to be easily the single most powerful person in this part of the world, she's helpless to fight her fate. And it's more or less her fault? As we find out, she talked Dracula into traveling the world, which isn't so bad, until we find out that she talked him into traveling the world specifically as a mortal man. As in, moving at regular human speeds and using regular human forms of contact. As in, he has no idea that anything is happening to her and will not find out that she's in danger until after she's already dead. And I'm putting them both down as pretty big dumbasses for letting this shit happen. Like, it's 1475 and the world hates women. Maybe don't leave your wife alone while you fuck off to who knows where. But Lisa is... Well, I would say she's a bigger person than I, but I don't actually think it's that. I think she just fundamentally misunderstands humanity. As she begins to burn, Lisa begs to the heavens, hoping that her husband will hear. She pleads with him to spare the people killing her in a very for-they-know-not-what-they-do kind of fashion, and like, no, girl, they know exactly what they're doing. Which is why I'm 100% on Dracula's side here, if I'm being perfectly honest. Like, I get it. I'm supposed to think of the poor innocent bystanders who didn't burn this woman at the stake themselves. Except, like, no? It's a town of people who literally stood by and let a woman be burned at the stake, and that's if they didn't actually cheer it on or help it happen. These people deserve what they get. If you can really stand there and watch someone be burned to death for the heinous crime of, let me check my notes here, 
Oh, being slightly less than conventional as a woman. Yeah. Um, go get them, Dracula. I am absolutely on your side, dude. Get them good. And he does. He doesn't hear her pleading, of course, and he punishes the town in spite of her dying wish. Except, well, not hearing her words doesn't actually matter, does it? Because this isn't something she's suddenly pulling out at the last minute, is it? This is a fundamental part of Lisa's character. From her introductory scene on, her whole thing has been trying to pull Dracula into harmony with humanity, to get him to offer understanding and mercy. And she clearly hasn't changed in 20 years. She clearly would not want Dracula to take the revenge that he does here, which he should know after having lived with her for, again, 20 entire years. Dracula should know that she would ask for mercy, which means that he's either actively rejecting her wishes or else he simply doesn't know her all that well. Which brings me back to my I think he just got used to having her around bit from earlier. Honestly, I really think it's not so much that he loved her, as he loved having someone make an effort to insert themselves into his life in a positive fashion. I really think that he would have loved any woman who just showed up and stuck around. I don't think he actually loved Lisa as a person. I think he's confusing fondness and attraction for love, and I'm not judging. I do just want to point it out. Especially as we're heading towards some textualization of the whole she-wouldn't-have-wanted-this idea. But like I said, I'm on Dracula's side here. Honestly, I wouldn't even have bothered with the whole you've-got-a-year thing. This guy's clearly got the firepower right from the jump. Fuck this wait-a-year shit. I would have set the whole place on fire right then. Y'all think it's a bunch of fun when one person burns? Okay, well then you're gonna love this shit. But no, he gives them a year and their dumbasses don't even like try to flee town or anything. So here comes the horde of gargoyly vampire beasts that are cool as fuck and very much willing to tear the populace limb from limb. And they do a damn good job of it. This show is not shy when it comes to the gore. There are entrails and eyeballs and more blood than any vampire could possibly hope to drink. And Dracula orders the monsters to turn the town into quote, a graveyard for my love. And to quote, kill for the endless lifetime of hate before me, which is the most emo thing I've ever heard. Like, baby, calm down. A graveyard for my love? An endless lifetime of hate? You are an immortal who married a human. You were gonna bury her at some point. What the fuck were you gonna do when she died of old age? Like, calm down. But before our episode ends, we must introduce our hero. We've got a villain, and now we have to have someone to fight him, right? Thankfully, it's not either of the inbred lumps currently discussing goat fucking and goat fuckers. It is, very stereotypically, an exiled noble lurking in the back of the bar trying to mind his own business. And if you recognize the voice, yes, that is Richard Armitage trying his damnedest to voice act. And while some of you may recognize him from BBC's 2006 Robin Hood series, or NBC's Hannibal, he is of course most famous for playing Thorin Oakenshield in Peter Jackson's much maligned, though perfectly mediocre, Hobbit trilogy. That's not actually relevant here, but I just find it kind of funny. Both characters stem from a certain set of shared tropes, after all. In any case, our episode ends with the implication that this man is the last of the Belmonts, a hated family of vampire hunters, and that he, of course, is going to be the one tasked with taking Dracula down. 
But first, as the second episode opens, he's going to make an enormous ass out of himself. Now, nothing will ever convince me that he didn't pick this fight that he gets into. With his family crest emblazoned upon his chest, he approaches the men who have just been very vocal about how much they hate the Belmonts, and he fiddles around for his coin purse for just long enough for them to clock him and decide to start a fistfight. It's an establishing character moment, yes, but it's not a largely interesting one. It honestly tells me nothing about Trevor Belmont beyond that he's a reckless smartass who believes wholeheartedly in his inability to lose a fight, which hopefully means that we're going to see him lose an important fight in the future, I think. Anyway, he wanders away from the bar and comes upon a town beset by baby-eating vampire beasts that like treating entrails like garland, and it's very festive, I suppose. And very adorably yet disgustingly, Belmont has himself a very video game moment here. He sneaks into the city via the sewers, and it is as disgusting as it sounds. In the town proper, we find that life goes on in spite of the carnage, though not for long, if the city's body disposal is any indication. They're not even dumping the corpses, like, outside the city walls, they're dumping them into the empty riverbed, and that is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. It's like they're trying to kill themselves. And, in another moment of, this is clearly based off of a video game and I am tickled pink, Trevor goes on a ask the merchant NPCs if they know anything jaunt. Like any good player character, he gets some tidbits of lore and then stumbles across a not-so-random encounter. It's two priests hassling an old man from some kind of a magical pacifist sect, and they're going to kill the guy until Belmont reluctantly intervenes. Regretfully, it's here that I have to say that I think Armitage might be the weak link in this show for me. His voice acting is perfectly serviceable, I suppose, it's just that Belmont is clearly written to be a kind of charming, witty, smartass character, and Armitage is not at all selling that to me. Honestly, I rewatched these episodes with the sound off while I was writing this script for the podcast, and yeah, Belmont comes across as much more likable when I can imagine someone else's voice coming out of his mouth. Sorry. Anyway, the old man introduces himself as a member of the Speakers, a nomadic group threatened with a pogrom, which is a rather strong word to use in this fantasy show, given that it's primarily used to describe riots and massacres that expelled Jews specifically. It's not only applied to anti-Semitism in real life, no, but it is not a word to use lightly. I suspect there is some better choice that could have been made here. In any case, when Belmont meets the speakers, he gets himself a side quest. There is a missing speaker, one who is repeatedly referenced with gender-neutral language. This could be because this person, the elder's grandchild, is non-binary. More likely, though, is that we're looking at a Samus is a girl scenario here, with gender-neutral language being used to set up a they're a woman reveal, as if a female hero is at all something shocking that we need to play coy about in the year 2017. Here's hoping this mysterious they is an NB instead. Now, we get some more world-building here. We hear more about the speakers, who are apparently vehemently against writing down their oral histories. The speakers tell Belmont about the death of Dracula's wife, and they get just a bit into the myth of the sleeping soldier, as well as the tidbit that, quote, it is possible to hear stories from the future, inviting the viewer to consider that there may be some time-related fuckery with the whole concept of a warrior slumbering beneath the town in preparation of some kind of an eventual Arthurian return. In any case, though, the mysterious grandchild has not returned from their search for the sleeping soldier, and though Belmont tries desperately to convince himself and the rest of them that this is not at all his problem, he is, unfortunately, a player character turned TV protagonist, which means he's really got no choice. 
he agrees to go, quote, rescue the kid's body in order to get these nomads on the brink of being pogromed out of town before the inevitable occurs. And because the kid is being referred to gender neutrally and as if they're already dead, I think we can all agree that in the next episode, they're going to turn out to be very much a woman and very much alive. But I suppose we'll see. So, with these two episodes being a very, very short chunk of the show, this is a very, very short little episode of the podcast, but that is, in fact, the entirety of my recap. I had wondered during my reaction video recording if I should go ahead and watch the entirety of this season for one podcast episode, but I did ultimately decide to split my season one coverage of Castlevania into two episodes. So after I finish up this recording, I'm going to be sitting down to watch the next two episodes, the final two episodes of season one, very, very shortly. If you are interested in those reaction videos, those are available to $5 patrons, along with plenty of other reaction videos to all kinds of other things, including other vampire properties like The Lost Boys, Midnight Mass, Vampire Night, and presumably plenty more to come, as well as other non-vampire-related stories such as Umbrella Academy, Bly Manor, Squid Game, and many more. And if you are interested in helping me decide what it is that I'm going to be watching next, then you may be interested to know that $1 per month patrons get access to occasional polls determining what it is that I watch from week to week. If you're not at all interested in the Patreon, fair enough, a rating or a review on your podcatcher of choice is also very much appreciated as an alternative, as would be talking about the show on social media or simply recommending it to a friend. And if you are unwilling or unable to do any of that, I simply hope that you will join me again next week when I cover Castlevania Season 1, Episode 3 and 4. Thank you so much for listening. I'm supposed to think of the poor innocent bystanders who didn't did I say bystanders?